Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. A couple of years ago, we heard a lot about a changing landscape in the United States Supreme Court. In the interim, we've seen really explosive cases such as Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, where a divided court overruled the landmark case of Roe v. Wade, sending the issue of abortion back to the states. Upon that ruling, many commentators and activists felt this was just the beginning. So in that spirit, we've been watching both that which has been decided and perhaps that which is to come. Tonight, we look down the barrel of the Supreme Court to see what's likely to come up during the next year. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking about cases that are currently pending before the United States Supreme Court, perhaps other appellate courts. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation, but do bear in mind that our attorney guests can't provide you with precise legal advice. They don't have all the facts relating to your given case. However, we're happy to pass along legal principles to assist you in your decision-making. And their guidance mightn't be the positions of their employers or their clients, but after all, they're here to help. Our phone number here in the studio is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866 866- Seven nine eight eight two five five, and to help us sort out just what might be coming this term, Ben Foyer is the chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a law firm specializing in appeals with offices in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. Ben represents businesses and individuals with high-stakes civil appeals in federal and state court, including the United States Supreme Court and has been called one of the top appellate litigators in California. Among other honors, he clerked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and he also writes constitutional and appellate matters for publications like the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the National Law Journal. Without further ado, Ben Boyer, thank you. Welcome back to your legal rights. Thanks, Jeff. And just to clarify, the name of my law firm is the Complex Appellate Litigation Group. And that's a step up from where we were when last we talked about this. No, that was what it was when we last talked, maybe a few years back. Well, one of the things that's interested me in looking at some of the Supreme Court decisions, even within the last few days, is it's not always what they've decided to hear, but often what they've decided not to hear. Yeah, the uh, well, you know, for your listeners, to the extent they're they're aware of it, the U.S. Supreme Court begins its annual terms on the first Monday in October. So, just uh, this past Monday, two days ago, uh, was the beginning of the Supreme Court's 2023 term. The term will go until June of uh, the end of June of 2024, but it's called the 2023 term. Um, and yes, they begin the, the the term every year just about by um, basically going through all of the, the petitions that were filed over the summer. 
Uh, and out of those petitions, often they take a few of them that may or may not be big, major, earth-shattering cases for, for people on sort of every day on the street. Um, but they also turn away a, a number of cases um, that also could or could not have been big, earth-shattering cases for uh, people who, who are on the street. So, you know, for example, they turned away a few cases um, arising out of lawyers who got in trouble for what they did during the 2020 election. Um, it's taken years to get up there, but, but there were a couple of lawyers who, and still many lawyers who, who are still in the process of kind of getting in trouble for the 2020 election who, uh, um, you know, are, are, are starting. I'm sure there will be more requests for the Supreme Court to uh, uh, hear cases from lawyers who've gotten into that kind of trouble, but they have rejected the first two that have come up. One of whom was on this program right before the election in 2020. Uh, what's interesting to note is the— uh, And who, hundred, who is that, Jeff? That would be John Eastman, who was John on Eastman. Yeah. a week before the show, a week before the election, I should say. He was on the show. And they turned down his appeal because he wanted to withhold emails from Congress investigating January 6th. It was almost irrelevant because the university— with which he used to be affiliated, actually forwarded the emails on and before before he told them, no, that's probably not such a great idea. Yeah, I mean, there are going to be more Supreme Court petitions involving John Eastman. Perhaps most interestingly out of this one was that Clarence Thomas uh, recused himself from considering the case. Um, John Eastman was a law clerk to Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas, many, many moons ago, 20, more than 20 years ago. Um, but they have stayed in touch and they, they still do have connections with one another. And Thomas said he wasn't going to hear this one, um, which probably suggests that Thomas isn't going to hear other cases involving Eastman. This case probably wasn't the, the kind of the biggest one that will involve John Eastman. This case, as you mentioned, involved uh, uh, Congress. The January 6th commission that has long since sort of wrapped up its duties uh, had demanded Eastman's emails. Um, and Eastman kind of, you know, the, the whole thing was kind of a, a, an embarrassment to him. Um, at first he said, hey, you can't give over my emails. Uh, the pre President Trump was my client and those are privileged. Uh, and and I went to court and the court said, hey, no, there's an exception to the privilege where you're part of a criminal conspiracy. And I find you, John Eastman, were part of a criminal conspiracy with Donald Trump and others. Uh, and therefore, we can't you know, we're not going to let you withhold your emails. But even after that, Eastman wanted to appeal. He ended up sending all of his emails uh, to the January 6th commission, but said, please don't read them yet. I'm, I'm still litigating this. And the January 6th commission said, no, we're, we're going to read them. You sent them to us. Um, and then as, as Eastman was kind of emailing with the commission about this, he also emailed all of these emails in like a Dropbox folder to the press. Um, and and I, I, I think he maybe thought the Dropbox folder was disabled or something, but it wasn't. It was all of his emails were in there and he sent them all to the press. And so the press got their hands on them. So he was kind of taking up this this appeal long after the cat was out of the bag. Uh, and um, it's very, very unsurprising that the Supreme Court declined to intervene in, in this situation. Herding cats is always so challenging, even without putting them in a bag. Let me turn it over to John from San Leandro. John, welcome to your legal rights. Yes, hi. Um, I had a question about uh, tenant rights. 
uh, in a case where a uh, apartment building tree fell on a tenant's vehicle. And um, the management of the property is saying that they don't have to provide their insurance information to the tenant. And uh, the tenant is wondering why that's the case. And is that actually the case? Uh, well, you were, unfortunately, you chose the wrong week for that for that question. We did have Landlord Tenant Week uh, just on. It'll be back again in eight weeks. But mm-hmm. rather than waiting for eight weeks to get that answer, um, you are in San Leandro. Why not mm-hmm. call the Lawyer Referral Service of the Alameda County Bar Association? Okay. And their number is 510-832-2222. Uh, you have to repeat that one second here. I've got to grab a pencil. All right. Uh, once more again. That number is, and this again is the Alameda County Bar Association. They do mm-hmm. have a lawyer referral service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their number is 510-302-2222. Great. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. Best of luck. And thank you for joining us in your legal rights. And let's circle back with that slight detour. Um, One of the things that struck me are the hundreds of cases that they chose not to listen to. And they took up, what, about 15, 20? Well, you know, one case, just sort of from what your last caller was was asking about, one case was a challenge to uh, um, essentially some rent control laws uh, put in place in New York. Uh, and uh, the some landlords uh, complained about those rent control laws and said, "Hey, you know these, these are these are a taking under the Constitution. The Constitution prohibits the government from taking property without giving compensation to the property owners." And they said, "Hey, look, you're you know the government's regulation here is preventing us from being able to charge you know what what we thought we would be able to charge when we." bought this prop these properties and th- therefore you're taking you know income from us essentially um th- these arguments have been made in the past and the supreme court has sort of always turned them down and said hey you know look rent control that's a very local issue and we're going to kind of let localities figure out how they want to handle that themselves but you know these landlords i think probably thought we have a 6 to 3 conservative majority on the supreme court there's certainly some justices who care an awful lot about property rights and you know may- maybe there's a chance the supreme court will insert itself in this in, in this case, um, well, but the Supreme actually, Court said no. Actually, I was looking at that, and it seems that it that would be the second prong of the thing they're challenging. But the other thing the owners are challenging is a New York law that says that the owner can't terminate a tenancy at the end of a fixed lease term unless it has to do with grounds that are outside the owner's control. So, if I rented to you my house for a year. Maybe I was vacationing or something like that, but I wanted to come back. I can't simply end it at the end of a year, which I thought was a lot closer to a taking than simply the rent control. Sure. Yeah. And then uh, there are laws like that in, you know, here in the Bay Area. Um, in fact, throughout California, the Ellis Act, right? If you're going to evict somebody from, uh, um, you know, a property and they're a tenant over a certain amount of you know, time, you have to pay them a certain amount of money at least uh, in order to evict them. You can't just say, hey, the lease is up and I want to move back into my house. And I don't know the details of the New York law. Maybe it 
didn't even allow for that that payment issue. But uh, you know, look, I, I think that there are some very good reasons that people might not want to be landlords uh, in some of these states uh, that make it very hard. You know, if, if if you have a tenant or you have a property that you you kind of would like to live in yourself, um, you know, you, you really have to make a decision about whether or not you want to uh, rent it out, and and that may be a reason that you know that it's it's it can be expensive to to find rental properties because people don't uh, uh, you know put them up for rent um, or they'll only put them onto Airbnb or something like that because it is so hard to uh, get your property back at the end. Some of the other interesting cases that they're looking at, one of them is a very interesting twist that ties up both the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. Uh, there, In this case, I, I read that the NRA is trying to get the attention of the Supreme Court because of a local official. This is out of the Second District. This is um, Second Circuit. You second mean. Circuit, I mean. And they actually are complaining because the local official was threatening these businesses who did business with somebody they didn't like the personal views of. This is a speaker that offended them. So they blocked – so they threatened uh, their businesses and the like, uh, gun sales. Uh, have you read that one by chance? You know, I, I don't – I'm not aware of that one. I know the court hasn't granted uh, review of that that case but you know th- there are a number of cases you know that that kind of intersect and and uh, uh, you know apply to some of these gun you know gun rights issues and first amendment issues so uh, for example there is a case that i think will probably uh, interest a lot of people um, before the supreme court where they have granted a cert and they are going to be hearing a case uh, involving a, a ruling out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is in the South, it's Texas, uh, Louisiana, and I think Mississippi. And uh, th- this was a case where, where the judges held that laws um, that ban owning guns by people who have been found to be domestic violence abusers are unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Now, this ruling is what I, you know, I think would, would very fairly be characterized as a radical view of gun rights that essentially elevates the right to own a gun over virtually everything else in in social life and and this has certainly been a a um you know a, a cause of interest for certain aspects of the conservative mu- movement although I, I really wonder why exactly um you know there's a lot of money made in gun sales and that probably has something to do with it um but but these are, you know, in my opinion, this was an absolutely atrocious ruling um, that really didn't do any justice to the Second Amendment or uh, a fair, you know, you know, evaluation or interpretation of the law. The um, something like seventy women are killed by guns in domestic violence situations in the United States every month. Eighty um, percent of domestic violence people who are killed in domestic violence situations are women. Um, and there is a direct and very significant correlation between having access to a gun um, when somebody is a domestic violence abuser and in a charged emotional domestic uh, um, dis- dispute and use of that gun to kill somebody, usually a woman. Um, so there's been a federal law on the books for something like 30 years now that has prohibited people – um, convicted of domestic violence from owning a gun, and many states also have laws 
uh, sort of saying, look, if you show yourself to be sort of very dangerous and you're beating your wife, um, you know, giving you a gun is a terrible idea. I mean, this is one of the big problems with with guns generally. It's that when people get very emotional, they don't act rationally and they they lash out. Um, this is perhaps part of human nature. Um, but if you're lashing out, um, it's terrible if you're lashing out with a fist. Uh, it's really terrible if you're lashing out with a gun uh, because a gun is a lot more deadly and has the potential to impact people who are standing nearby or just about anything else. So this was a, a really terrible ruling, and the fact that the Supreme Court granted review um, is a good sign. Um, there are um, um, uh, what now four women on the Supreme Court um, who may have a particular concern about this. Um, there are um, men with daughters on the Supreme Court to the extent you, you have to, I guess, have that for, for some people in, in your life to, to be able to empathize with uh, uh, the challenges, unique challenges women face. And so I have some, uh, some real hope that the Supreme Court is going to constrain some of its precedents, bring some of its precedents a little bit more back down to earth and find that, you know, the, that the state does have a power to, uh, uh, you know, prevent really dangerous people who have shown themselves to be dangerous and violent from owning deadly weapons. The flip side is that, and I don't want to be necessarily taking one side, but the other argument is that sometimes the states will say, that if it involves somebody you're close to, that's enough. If the relationship is there, that's enough to deprive you of gun ownership for life. And sometimes we can be talking about the smallest of of charges because under California law, by way of example, any crime in which the other uh, the other person is someone you're in a qualifying relationship, any crime is considered domestic violence even if the crime doesn't involve violence. So it could involve vandalism. You could get mad and throw somebody's phone on the ground. And that, if it's prosecuted as a domestic violence charge, that will trigger a lifetime ban. It used to be that many states, and they're getting fewer and fewer, would provide that in such instances you recover after maybe 10 years without any other charges, without any other domestic violence, and the federal law would defer to the state law. The state law provided for recovery, then the federal law would yield to it. That's on the state level gone in California. I don't know if it's gone in other states. So it could be that they're looking for a balance. Absolutely. And it may be that the court steps in. I mean, I, uh, you know, then says, look, you know, Domestic violence can include a lot of things, and it, you know if you're going to deprive someone of gun, gun ownership, you know it has to be something that indicates violence. Um, you know that that may be something that the the court you know says, and and you know to get there, the court would probably look to historical regulations on gun ownership. Um, at least that's what the current precedents say. But I suspect that if they looked hard enough, <laughs> they probably don't have to look that hard. They could find a, a, a history of limiting access to guns by people who have committed violent crimes and done other things that involve violence. Um, so it's possible that the court will say, look, just being convicted of domestic violence alone isn't enough if there actually isn't violence behind that conviction. And, and you're absolutely right. In California, going through somebody's emails or, um, you know, without permission or, um, you know, a acting in a way that is, 
you know, a court finds is, is what's called coercively controlling. Those can be forms of domestic violence under California law where there is no actual violence taking place that, that is physical or that would lead, you know, to, to the kind of concern, you know, about, um, um, you know, about, about somebody engaging in violence that, that would justify sort of taking away their, their right to have, have deadly weapons. You know, somebody listening posed a question about the framers' intent. What was the original intent that addresses domestic abusers? And when we look back 200 and well, close to 250 years now, um, our founding fathers, and they were all fathers because they didn't really allow women to participate in government much in those days. Uh, one wonders how they would look at how we treat domestic violence and whether that would be outside their framework. Yeah, I mean, so the, this is what I mean. This is one of the 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 parts of this ruling that is the the district court, the trial court in, in Texas that made the initial decision that said uh, that these laws are are un, unreasonable or unacceptable under the Second Amendment. The district court essentially said, "Hey, look, up until the 1970s, you could beat your wife. That wasn't a crime in many states." Um, and certainly not in the 1870s or the 1770s. So surely there's no historical tradition of saying that, you know, you can, you know, we're going to take guns away from people who commit domestic violence. Um, but, but this is one of the problems with the Supreme Court's very recent precedents on gun rights, which, is, which in theory look they, – they say that courts are supposed to look to historical – uh, um, traditions in terms of restricting guns. But historically, th there were many, many different views, very different views, both of um, you know how people would interact with their spouses and with one another, right? Um, you know, certainly during slavery times, you could do violence against slaves, right? Which, of course, now today uh, is an abhorrent concept. Um, and so, you know, kind of just looking back to these restrictions, it's also certainly the case that the there there were not as many guns and and guns being used for uh, um, sort of violent mass shootings. Um, you know, really before the the, the 21st century. Uh, in many cases, right? Um, the access people would maybe have access to handguns, maybe shotguns, but they didn't have access and low cost access to machine guns in the way that they kind of do today. So looking purely to kind of whether, you know, domestic violence laws would have been in place in 1789 that would have a, you know, well, one, there wouldn't have there wouldn't have been any penalty for beating your wife in 1789 because you know women you know, at the time were were in in some ways considered property, a kind of property. But even even if there were, there there wasn't an idea that oh we should take away your gun because look you're you're probably not going to be using your musket um, to kill your wife who who couldn't leave you anyway. <laughs> there, you know, there were there there weren't necessarily even laws that would permit your wife to leave you or divorce you. So the the context was so different um, at that time, and the way you know people interacted with one another in domestic settings and the way people had, you know, the relationships people had with weapons were so different at the time that I think there are a lot of very good reasons uh, to doubt the um, sort of wisdom of the Supreme Court's recent decisions saying that, hey, to determine whether or not 
gun regulations in the 21st century are acceptable. Let's look at what the gun regulations were like in the 18th century. And of course, that was before the invention of bullets. They were sticking musket balls in and black powder and jamming it in with a with an instrument that packed it so that they could light it on fire, and half the time it blew up in the person's face. Uh, Very hard to do a mass shooting at the local schoolhouse when it takes you, you know, three minutes to load one musket round that's probably going to go very far afield from where you aim it. Let's shift gears a little bit. Before we go to the station ID, I'd like to chat about some of the other issues that we've been looking at uh, for the last few years. One of them had to do with abortion cases, and there's some interesting cases working their way through the federal courts, whether the Supreme Court tends to take them or not. Um, do we know whether the Supreme Court is close to looking at or has chosen not to look at the issue involving the banning of the abortion pill? Yeah, I mean, I think the Supreme Court's probably going to take this up. Um, they they um, did excuse me issue a stay of a ruling by the Fifth Circuit um, um, uh, a few months – well, so to take it further back, there, there was a judge, uh, I believe again in Texas, might have been Louisiana, also the Fifth Circuit where uh, a lot of these very conservative uh, decisions come from now, um, where, you know, that found that the Food and Drug Administration had exceeded its authority in approving a, a drug called uh, mifepristone. Which is a drug that people take, uh, you know, to induce abortions. Um, and um, this drug had been uh, approved, I believe, since the 1990s. In the early 2000s, so the approval was expanded. Early 2010s, I think, the approval was expanded. Um, I think to to allow uh, it to be sent by mail uh, to people who couldn't get to a pharmacy that that would distribute it. Um, and there was a judge in Texas who said, oh, this drug should never have been approved. It's really bad. The abortion is really bad. No one should ever have abortions. And, you know, th therefore, the FDA shouldn't have approved this drug. Um, and that went up on appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which said, OK, look, you know, we're not going to go that far. Um, the original approval of this drug was okay. It is a legitimate drug for a legitimate reason. Um, but the expansion of this, the approval of this drug in, um, you know, nearly, I think, 2012, um, it, that that was a, a exceeded the FDA's authority. They didn't do sufficient sort of research into it. Um, that's gone up to the Supreme Court. Um, Ju Justice Samuel Alito, um, it's a little bit surprisingly, uh, put a stay on that decision while the court considered the case. Um, and I think the court is, if it hasn't granted cert already, it certainly will, I suspect. Um, and uh, I'd be very surprised if it didn't at least. And we'll evaluate, you know, you know, is that correct? Um, in some ways, it's a question, a little bit less of a question about abortion and a little bit more of a question about agency authority. Um, there are a lot of drug manufacturers that say, look, the FDA is the organization that really understands the science and it goes through the science and it sort of determines whether or not, um, um, you know, the drug should be approved or not if the science supports it. If not, very complicated stuff um, that, that really needs experts and that courts shouldn't be in a position of re regularly second guessing. Uh, the FDA, because judges are not scientists. They certainly are not scientists. And in some cases, they're not very good judges. <laughs> but, um, you know, you know, 
that uh, uh, drug companies, the, the complexity behind uh, some of the drug approvals and the studies and the balancing of sort of the benefits and the risks and, and all of these other factors are ones that Congress has entrusted to this agency, the Food and Drug Administration, and um, that you know, the court should really allow Congress to do that. There's been a big push against administrative agencies having what some courts and some conservatives especially consider too much power. So in some ways, this comes out of it. But of course, abortion is always at the backdrop. So, of course, with all that in mind, anything is possible given the Supreme Court and how they choose to frame the issue. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. And tonight we're discussing the new Supreme Court and the current docket as it begins its new term. We've been joined by appellate lawyer extraordinaire, Ben Foyer. If you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, you can call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking about the Supreme Court, the cases that are lined up for this year. And you're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. You're listening to Your Legal Rights, and we'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County... The Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. You know, before we leave the topic of abortion, there's an interesting side issue that seems to be uh, surfacing this year. A dispute between Planned Parenthood and an anti-abortion group that's been recording the doctors and staff and trying to get behind and undo a, a pretty large judgment against them. Have you Are you familiar with that case? Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, the Supreme Court, um, as you may know, declined to take up the appeal um, from this group, which is um, uh, a group that basically goes around um, recording uh, um, – uh, you know, doing undercover recording for conservative causes. Um, this is uh, um, it's, so these guys went sort of undercover in the, uh, um, you know, against Planned Parenthood and, and recorded some footage secretly that they said um, showed that uh, uh, Planned Parenthood was engaged in um, um you know, do, doing things with, with fetal tissue. Um, you know, I don't know whether that's true or not, but ultimately um, Planned Parenthood sued them basically for violating wiretap laws um, and, and sort of undercover uh, uh, wiretap, uh, um, um, undercover recording laws. Um, and um, ultimately that went to, uh, to the courts uh, the court, the, the the district court, the trial court ruled in favor of Planned Parent, Planned Parenthood, and awarded it damages. Went up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit, um, and 
the Ninth Circuit essentially affirmed the the at least the award of damages. So these guys appealed to the um, uh, first, you know, to the Supreme Court, saying, "Hey, we're journalists. We're doing, you know, journalism, and that's protected by the First Amendment, even if we're sort of recording people secretly in a way that violates the laws. Um, that's protected by the First Amendment." And the Supreme Court didn't get involved. Uh, it declined to hear the case. Um, you know, the you know uh, um, journalists can do lots of stuff to report the news, but they're bound by laws just like anybody else, right? Um, you know, a journalist can't break into your house and go through your your desk drawer to find something you know to report on, even if what they find is newsworthy. That's still a crime. So um, that's essentially, I think, what what was guiding the Ninth Circuit's decision, and probably why the Supreme Court decided to get involved, even though the group was kind of a conservative group, and and there are a lot of conservatives on the Supreme Court. One of the things that many many who have run for office have complained about in California is the so-called ballot designation, where right under the candidate's name. It lists what their current source of income is or an elected office they hold. Can't be an appointed office, has to be an elected office or their primary source of income. And I understand that New Jersey had a law that talked about slogans really aimed at the same type of thing. And the Supreme Court didn't really weigh in on that, did they? No, um, the, the Supreme New Jersey has a law that allows candidates to basically pick a slick, a six-word slogan, um, in um, you know, for their ballot measures. Uh, I mean, for the, for their candidacy on the ballot, and um, but New Jersey says that they have to. New Jersey law says they have to be um, they have to be truthful. Um, so there was a guy in New Jersey. Of course, this is out of New Jersey, who said uh, he wanted to run for office and said um, he wanted to use a slogan that said supported by the governor. But in reality, the governor of New Jersey had endorsed the other guy running for the office. So the, the guy who was in charge of the election said, hey, you can't use that slogan. You can say something else, but you can't use that slogan. And this guy uh, uh, sued and said, hey, I've got a First Amendment right to to use whatever slogan I want. You can't control what I what I say if you allow me to use a slogan. Um, and, and the court said, uh, no, um, there, you know, state is permitted to regulate untruthful speech. And this has kind of always been the case, right, especially in commercial cases that you're not allowed to basically lie about your product um, in, you know, you can get in trouble if you're selling a product and you sort of lie on the package. You say it's fat free and it's not fat free or you say it's, you know, no, no harmful chemicals and it's got lots of harmful chemicals or something. Uh, you can be sued for that. And, um, the, you know, there are laws that prohibit that. There are laws that prohibit fraud in general, right? Even saying to somebody, hey, if you, you know, uh, um, hire me, I'll, I'll fix your house and then not fixing their house. Um, that that could be a form of fraud, right? So um, that's sort of long been an exception to the First Amendment, and so it's really no surprise that the courts said to this guy, "Look, you can't lie on your uh, election forms," um, and you know it's really no surprise that the Supreme Court declined to get involved. 
Let me turn it over to another caller, Fran from San Francisco. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi, thank you for the program. My quick question is, have there been any new developments on getting rid of Clarence Thomas? And uh, what is your opinion about it? I'll take my answer off the air. Great, uh, you know, great question. Certainly something on on uh, many people's minds, um, given the reporting over the summer that uh, um, Clarence Thomas had been uh, um, had engaged in a number of uh, personal um, how, what, what should, how, how should we call it, Jeff? Personal. Um, um, uh, um, uh, well, vacations it- and and sort of other events with some very wealthy individuals. Um, so in particular, um, you know, there, there, the, a, a news group called ProPublica reported that um, Justice Thomas had been, taking, had been um, going on vacations with a, a billionaire by the name of Harlan Crow, which is really, if, you've ever, if you want to come up with a name for a villain, Harlan Crow really kind of hits the nail on the head. Um, you know, and, and that, that case, that, that whole situation is really troubling on a lot of different levels. One level that troubles me, obviously, is, well, Harlan Crow never had a direct case in front of the Supreme Court with Clarence Thomas. He is connected, allegedly, to a lot of groups that may have. But also the fact that one of the things that came out is there's no ethical rules in place that would require either disclosure or recusal. So while I question, and I think every reasonable person would question where the line is drawn and should he really have been able to do this, the fact is there's no law to the contrary. And now we're looking to go back and say, you know, just because we didn't have any rule in place at the time doesn't mean we can't take action now. So I, I find it troubling on a, on many different levels. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a, it is a troubling situation. I think that that's a really good way to describe it. Um, there, there is not there, – there is a, a code of ethics for federal judges beneath the Supreme Court that would require disclosure of basically large gifts from anybody and would certainly require, disclo- require recusal um, if an impartiality could be questioned on the basis of gifts received. Like this guy Crow, I think, bought Clarence Thomas's mother's house. Uh, you know, and, and put his one of his adopted children through school. So they're, they're, they, they clearly have this kind of a very close financial kind of connection. Um, and, uh, but, but there are no regulations uh, for the Supreme Court on their ethical, um, you know, on the ethics. And this sort of comes out of the Constitution. The Constitution creates the Supreme Court, but allows Congress to essentially create and regulate lower federal courts other than sort of with the removal of judges. Um, but it, it, the, the, the Supreme Court positions really come directly out of the, the Constitution. And so there's a real question, can Congress even pass a code of ethics 
you know, that would apply to the Supreme Court. And if Congress can't, you know, why doesn't the Supreme Court just adopt its own code of ethics? Um, so there's been that kind of this battle about this. Um, there is some some suggestion that maybe the Supreme Court is considering adopting a code of ethics. Sam Alito was J- Justice Alito was in the news saying Congress is not allowed to uh, uh, make us um, adopt a code of ethics. Although there's really no question Congress could defund the Supreme Court um, or at least fund it less. Right? Congress could put pressure on the court if it wanted to. And and um, and the reality is is that Congress does have the ability to impeach and remove justices of the Supreme Court as any other federal you know, federal officer, um, which is inherently a political exercise. Now, now d- one doesn't expect them to start randomly firing people from the court, but it does suggest that there's some balance of power that needs to be sorted out. Yeah, I mean, the the um, there are limits to to Congress's ability to impeach, you know, judges and justices. Um, the you know, there there is the impeachment clause, which limits impeachment generally, at least for civil officers, to conviction of treason, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. There's another pr- provision that says that judges shall hold their their uh, uh, office while on good behavior. So there are some limits um, to to when Congress can impeach uh, uh, just judges and justices, and impeachment against judges and justices is very rarely invoked. There, there is. I mean, I I, I can say absolutely. There is absolutely zero chance that Clarence Thomas is is going to get impeached unless something very 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 directly corrupt comes out. And these days, um, even then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I wonder if that would be enough, since uh, we seem to have lost any sense of, of shame in our uh, in, in our political system. Um, but um, so, so you know, to answer the caller's sort of question on the removal of Clarence Thomas, that isn't going to happen until you know Justice Thomas decides. You know, I, I can say with ninety nine percent certainty, decides it's time to go. Um, or, or you know, unexpectedly passes away. Um, but there is, you know, a lot of pressure on the court. Um, you know, the court has also issued some very, very controversial decisions, and its approval rating, um, which you know, look, the justices aren't elected, so they don't directly care about their approval rating. But the approval of the court is very important because if people don't approve of or, or, or think that the Supreme Court is a, a, a somewhat neutral body and doesn't care what the court uh, um, rules, then you know what? The political branches might just choose to ignore it. Um, the court – You know, the reality is, is the balance of power between Congress and the Supreme Court is essentially a political exercise. And as the popularity of the Supreme Court drops further and further, that shifts power away from the Supreme Court and over toward the two other branches of government because exactly. who are the people going to back up? Let me take a caller. We have Peter from Florida. Welcome to your legal rights. Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, you know what this reminded me of? Uh, I remember hearing about a, a book which was mentioned at, around the time of, well, in, in relation to Trump and his connections and, and the emollients clause and stuff like that. And we all learned that, you know, that's not a hard fixed rule. And there was a reference to a, a book. It, 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 the book is called George Washington's Snuffbox. Have you heard about it? I think the author was Deborah Teachout. And it was how George Washington declined a snuffbox. 
as a gift from some leader of some country because it might be interpreted as influence or a bribe and how far we've come from that like I'm thinking now it's relation to what you were talking about Clarence Thomas and making a new law but isn't there an well, are you going to suggest that should there be some overarching like uh, keep a, keep an arm's length from any of that stuff that's kind of like was the president that Washington was setting with the declining the snuff box gift yeah there are a lot of uh, historical examples of um, political actors declining uh, you know presidents and so forth declining gifts from foreign governments it's specifically i should point out the constitution it's it's the foreign emoluments clause so that clause prohibits gifts from foreign governments right and the idea being that a gift from a foreign government would cause a uh, um, you know, a, an officer of the United States to uh, per- perhaps have allegiance to a not the United States, but a different government. And that came up a lot during the Trump administration while he had these hotels where the Saudi government, for example, would still always stay at Trump, Trump International and rent out an entire floor, um, which in a certain way is payment from a foreign government that goes to the president. Um, and there were there were many other sort of examples of this that were extremely troubling during the Trump uh, years, and that other historical presidents, not just Washington, but Lincoln, uh, uh, many military officers over the years, because it, the, the, the clause applies to officers of the United States, um, which includes both civil and military officers, um, where, where they declined um, you know, to, to even have the appearance of taking gifts from foreign governments, because look, for a most of American history, that was a really bad thing if it looked like you were maybe not loyal to the United States and instead loyal to a foreign country instead. Um, somehow during the Trump years, people stopped caring. Um, and, I, and, I, and I remember during the uh, one of the, the political um, um, conventions, maybe it was in 2016 or 2020 or the Republican conventions when you know there were these these sort of Republican voters saying they, they'd rather have Putin than Hillary or Putin than Biden or something like that, uh, which is a very strange thing, um, at least in the, the history of the United States, for Americans to be expressing loyalty to foreign governments above even American governments. You can sort of think of maybe during the, the 1930s, there was sort of a big pro-Hitler movement, um, believe it or not, in the United States before the war, um, you know, among some groups of people who, um, you know, were very favorable to what Hitler was doing. Uh, and, you know, but, but certainly after that, certainly after World War II, um, and, and certainly before that period in time, Americans were lo- you know, very fiercely loyal to America over other countries. Um, that wasn't the case you know, during the Trump years. And unfortunately, you know, the Supreme Court didn't take up um, the, the cases that were challenging um, you know, you know, President Trump's uh, willingness to accept these kinds of monies and gifts from foreign governments. Um, for whatever reason. So, uh, but, but that isn't, you know, at least during the Biden administration, there hasn't been, uh, except on, on maybe Newsmax or some of the, the more very right-wing TV channels, there haven't been any, uh, certainly any credible accusations that President Biden has uh, uh, been taking money from foreign governments while uh, president of the United States. Peter, thank you for joining us in your legal rights. Let me turn it over to Anir from San Rafael. 
Hello. Welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you. Um, I want to bring up a, uh, a an interesting, uh, what I think is an interesting point. As you're talking about the balance or imbalance or change um, of of um, the, the the powers between the different branches of government, I want to bring up the the issue that this is something that is happening in different countries around the world these days. Democracies seem to be shifting or questioning themselves. And in that light, um, it's uh, worth mentioning what's happening in Israel, where there's a big struggle. I don't know how um, how much you know about it, but a big struggle now between uh, the prime minister, which uh, who is the leader of the executive branch, and uh, Supreme Court main, mainly. And a lot of Israelis have been have been going to the streets for for um, eight for months. months now, trying to to say we we don't want to lose democracy. And so this brings up the issue of asking: Is this something that we're seeing here in America? Are uh, is our democracy weakening? I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Well, one thing I find interesting in watching over there is seeing just how strongly people are defending the court and standing behind it and saying they're the only one that is really watching to see that the politicians aren't going overboard and aren't really taking total control. And it seems to me if this, if a similar prospect were happening here, we would not as a nation see that this court at least in, at the time being, we would not see that court as our savior. We would see them as the ones that threatens us in much of the country because they've been taking such strong, decisive action that's apparently quite unpopular. What do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I, I would hesitate to kind of try to draw direct one-to-one comparisons with what's going on in Israel with, you know, what what you know the situation in the United States. Um, you know, we have a written constitution; they don't. Um, the, the the issue kind of presented and, and, and that people are, are very upset over is sort of not uh, similar to any of the issues that, uh, you know, have kind of percolated in the American political, you know, or legal system. Um, you know, for example, there's no question that courts can review laws, you know, to determine if they are irrational, which which maybe is a comparison to what's going on in Israel a little bit. Um, but the um you know the 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 sort of underlying question the the or or final part of the question that the caller had is you know is democracy uh under threat or, or you know around the world and i think that you know th- there's no question that kind of since um you know you know maybe in the last 15 years or so um 20 years or so there has been a a very significant shift in um, um, perceptions on the value of democracy from people who who are living in democratic countries, um, and 
um, in countries that kind of have been on the edge of democracy a, a real sort of obvious regression into something much more you know much closer to autocracy right and you can see that obviously of course in Russia which is now long past anything resembling democracy it's a mafia state you know um, one thing you I noticed Turkey you can see it in uh, uh, countries like Hungary um, there, there are a number of countries around the world that maybe in the post-soviet years sort of had and in Turkey's case for the last century, previous century, that were sort of very vibrant democracies with certain restrictions maybe, but but relatively vibrant democracies that are now much more uh, 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 limited and much less democratic. And in the United States, you know, you, you, know, you, you have somebody like uh, uh, Donald Trump who um, I think – very few people would say that this man is not, um, at least uh, um, uh, in his rhetoric, much more similar to an autocrat. I mean, he was calling for the execution of the, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff the other day because you know he didn't like him, right? Which is very much not in line with sort of American traditions of democracy or even traditions of democracy. He's in also general. called for the summary execution of shoplifters. Shoot him in the back, which is. I yeah, would think a little overly overpowering. I mean, you, one could one could spend at this point, you know, probably twenty four hours straight listing, you know, listing the, uh, um, you know, the re, the somewhat terrifying things that man has said over the years. Let but, me jump um, to a caller. We have just yeah. enough time. Maybe get one caller in before we before we end. And I did want to take this call from Owen in Castro Valley. Owen, if you're still with us, you're on the air. Hello. Oh, and you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Hello. Um, I actually had a very specific, like, uh, landlord-tenant question. I was hoping that maybe Jeff could help me answer. So, I had a uh, I had an incident where a tree on the landlord's property destroyed uh, the tailgate of a vehicle that I own, and they refused to give me their insurance and said that they're not liable. Is that true? I'm having deja vu. Are, we, are you having deja vu here, Jeff? Very much so. This is very yeah. similar to the first call that we started with today. Um, if you're calling from Castro Valley, you could get a straight answer from a landlord-tenant attorney through the Lawyer Referral Service of the Alameda County Bar Association. Their number is 510-302-2222. Unfortunately, had you called a week ago, we were doing landlord-tenant. We'd be happy to talk with you about that, but that's not tonight. But thank you for joining us. And again, the Alameda County Bar, 510-302-2222. You know, one of the things I noticed, the last comment I'll make, I want to move on to one other area while we still have a few minutes. But one comment that I've heard over and over from people that tend to be strongly, uh, very strong in their beliefs towards one party or the other is each one thinks that the other party is out to end democracy. The very solid Republicans fear that we're turning into a one-party state, and they're not talking about the state of California. I don't quite understand why when the two houses of Congress are split and the other two branches are split, um, but they fear that we're becoming a one-party democratic state and, and really fear the generation that's up and coming. The Democrats fear that they're doing things that are anti-democratic. And it's hard to imagine that these rifts are going to settle anytime soon. 
Before we go, I did want to ask you, we have about three minutes left, and I did want to ask you about one last case or two cases in that my own practice, I'm a criminal defense attorney, so one of the things that really catches my eye is search and seizure. And we have two cases that really strike me as being fairly ridiculous. One of them is out of San Diego where the city uses a chalk to chalk tires to see if people have parked too long. And the the person there that's trying to bring it to the Supreme Court has been barking loudly to whoever would listen, which doesn't seem to be much, doesn't seem to be many, that that's a, that's a search within the Fourth Amendment. More seriously has a, is a case out of Ohio where the police conduct a uh, search of a car by opening the door while another officer looks in. Are you familiar with those, and what can you tell us about them? Yeah, well, certainly the, the, the car chalking case is surprisingly more uh, interesting than you think because there is, in fact, a circuit split on that question. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals has found that it is, in fact, an unlawful search and seizure uh, for police officers to put chalk on your tire. Uh, and then, you know what, you know what they do when, when you're going when, you know, to make sure that you aren't there for more than two hours, they put a little chalk on your tire and a little chalk on the, on the street. And then when they walk back two two hours later, if the chalk on your tire and the chalk on your the street are still aligned, then they know you've been there for more than two hours. Right. Um, so th- this has been kind of the way this is been done for uh, uh, you know decades and decades, uh, but but somebody brought a, a suit and, and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said, hey, look, when you're putting chalk on somebody's tire, that is a, a violation of the Fourth Amendment. You're seizing, you know, part, you're, you're you're searching and seizing basically part of their tire in order to do that. Um, that that decision was widely mocked, um, but it is the law of the Sixth Circuit, which covers four states uh, in the in, in kind of the mid the the Eastern Midwest. Um, the the same issue has come up in the Ninth Circuit. Went to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit said, "Don't be ridiculous. That's what we call a de minimis intrusion. Um, there's no real search or seizure going on. This, you know, they're they're just putting chalk on your tire. Get real." Uh, right. Sort of like you said, Jeff. But that's a circuit split. And what is the Supreme Court's number one job um, is, at least in theory, to resolve circuit splits among the lower federal circuits. So, at least when they're interested. At least when they're interested, at least when they think that there's a meaningful impact. And and this kind of this case does have kind of a a weird intellectual kind of bizarre, curious element to it. The stakes are both low in the sense that we're just talking about, you know, you know, parking tickets, but also high because many municipalities, this is how they enforce parking laws. Um, there is technology that you can get now that will do it differently where they type in your license. And then when you walk back, they type in the license again. But that takes more time. It takes an investment of money. Um, and again, it, if you own that business that they were parking in front of, you might not have people coming into your store because this car has been blocking your entrance for the yeah. last two days and there's not sure. a lot you can do about it. Right. Very hard to show that the car hasn't moved if you you know, you know don't have a way to actually show that the car hasn't moved that the courts are willing to accept. You know, ben, so, ben, you and I could chat all night. I think you and I could feed off each other for hours, but unfortunately we are out of time. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight we've been looking ahead at the California, at the U.S. Supreme Court and the docket of cases that are winding their way up. Our guest tonight has been Ben Foyer, chairman of the Complex Appellate Litigation Group. 
Our show tonight has been produced by yours truly. Please be sure to join Your Legal Rights again next week, Wednesday at 6, where, as always, we take your calls and answer your questions. And again, a big thanks to Ben Foyer, and especially our thanks to all of you for joining us. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Good night, stay safe, and zealously guard your legal rights. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.